Hey guys, it's John. And hey. Emmett, I don't know why I said your name. Let's take <laughs> start that over. Hey guys, it's Emmett, and I'm here with John. What's up, guys? And this is your weekly installment of Exhaust, your podcast about why nothing feels possible. Today we're having a fun one. We're talking about two movies and an essay by one of my favorite living writers, Jim Shepard. The two movies are Goodfellas and Vice the one about Dick Cheney directed by Adam McKay. I think that's his name. And the essay is <clears throat> comes from Jim Shepard's collection of essays on film, the tunnel at the end of the light. And these were all published in the believer. I want to say during the Bush administration. So this essay is called no regrets, good fellas and American hardball. So um, I don't really think we need to introduce Goodfellas or Vice or like walk through the plot. First of all, Vice doesn't really have a well-ordered or thoughtful plot, uh, even if it's an interesting (laughs) movie. Um, And Goodfellas is a classic. So really, I kind of want to start with like talking about how we used to watch Goodfellas Mm. and then what it was like coming to it now. Because, you know, I remember watching it when I was a kid and you know, I mean, it's just like typical shit, right? Like you sort of miss the quote unquote lesson in there. You like narcissistically identify with Henry Hill and his like power, his ability to just say like, fuck you. And you're just like, damn, yeah, I guess like you just got what was coming to you. And that's how that works. Can't stay on the ride forever. Yeah. The whole, the way the whole opening monologue scenes where he's a kid and stuff it's just like like that's it like when you're looking at that and you're like a young man you know like Mm -hmm. like fight club is so fucking stupid compared to this movie we could say (laughs) like in terms of like what they're up to and what they're trying to do like because this like we're going to i think say operates as a pretty legitimate piece of art on so many levels but when you're like a young man watching it and you see like his self-understanding getting related to you via this early monologues where he's like, just sees these cool guys doing whatever they want and then sees the rest of the world, like basically getting treated like some kind of shit and just Mm -hmm. being kind of resentful and spiteful, but you have to keep it inside or like his dad, you know, like all his dad can do is fucking beat him because like, that's his only outlet for like the rage that his life is like kind of, that he's responding to his life with kind of on a consistent yeah. basis. And you like, Henry's getting the shit beaten out of him by his dad, but he's just like, I don't care. You know, he's smiling because he's like, he found the like ticket into his quote unquote real life, which was something that alone often talked about. And his like movie posts on the last psychiatrist, which was like one of the things that we all learned by watching different movies is sort of that like their um how would you put it it's very like stimulating or whatever and the plots like we see enough of a certain plot and it kind of becomes the guiding way in which we might think about our lives mm-hmm. in a certain sense and so there's this thing of like so many movies are like this guy was regular until he wasn't and he got pulled into what you would then say was his real life where he was cool, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like effectual um, above the rest. Some woman really liked him and that meant everything about who he was like that kind of thing. And 
that whole thing, I think alone would say like really like formed so many of us on a deep, deep, deep level. And while most of those movies might not have had a whole lot going on otherwise, uh, Goodfellas interestingly kind of has it all. But so just like looking at Henry Hill's like formation and how, because immediately every time I watched that movie, I was like, yes, like this is who I would be if I had gotten the chance to work for a mobster pizzeria when I was like 15. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. But, I would have cut class. I mean, I did cut class to work. I mean, not for a fucking, but you know what I mean? But like, yeah, you can, I didn't know any guys in the mafia. Yeah. Thank I just God. smoked cigarettes um, and yeah. <laughs> stared at the pavement. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think Shepard puts it well here where he says, Goodfellas doesn't make dignified the nature of the mob business which is not to say it doesn't demonstrate its appeal. It is to say, though, that it makes the nature of that appeal a little more unpleasantly clear. Absolutely. When he talked about the differences between the similar early scenes in like The Godfather when you're in yeah. the, the like study or whatever, it's like asking for the favor. But yeah. then you look at the kind of... What would yeah, be you come to me uh, uh, on the <laughs> day of my daughter's wedding. Yeah. And then you get the analogous kind of early introduction to these characters and Goodfellas, And it's like the backyard, like chain link fence, sausages, like that whole, like, mm-hmm. it's very, uh, it's like tawdry and, and suburban, not literally suburban, but like, it's like regular in a way that's deeply kind of like, there's no majesty visually to what's going on there. Whereas the Godfather is like visually quite majestic most of the time. Well, right. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, Shepard, when he's writing about the Godfather, he sa- says, but the Godfather series also hit on a marketing strategy that the Republican party has since mastered embedding the expected concern for values within a reverence for nostalgia while on the, with the other hand, steamrolling whatever traditions get in the way of a buck. <laughs> he, he, I feel like he really encapsulated the whole thing when he said, called it essentially operatic. Yeah. Um, the way in which they interlaced scenes, um, different shots back and forth, and like the music from one scene, you know, like all these things that happened in those movies. It was very much like, yeah, absolutely. This is just like watching an opera. And mm-hmm. the way that the narrative and drama are framed is very much like um, there's, it's elevated to a little bit more rarefied of a level and that's kind of how you feel about it is like these are you're not watching um you know you're not watching goodfellas when you're watching the godfather i guess they're operating on really different registers if that makes sense and i thought that was such a good read of like what what the godfather was even though this essay wasn't about the godfather it was like the best thing i've ever read about the godfather yeah because he has to you i mean you have to talk about the godfather when you talk about goodfellas right because goodfellas is obviously a response it comes out in the 1990s it, it, so reagan's over i mean you can see it as sort of like a fearless and searching moral inventory of the reagan years i would say you know it's very concerned with money and it's corrupting influence and just how self-aggrandizing and cruel the nature of this male narcissism is. I mean, it's the, the idea is that you can do whatever you want and then keep other parts of your life safe. 
And that's sort of what the Godfather sells you, mm-hmm. you know, until Michael takes his misstep and like, you know, instead of becoming a senator or whatever, goes into his father's business at the mob, despite the fact that, you know, Vito doesn't want him to. You're like, mm-hmm. sort of like, mm, okay. Uh, in Goodfellas, it's like everything that Henry does to protect and provide for his family guarantees his family's destruction. Yeah, not only that, but on this go around watching it, it was a lot clearer to me that the whole like I'm doing this for us thing was like one of the many kind of like sort of instantaneous lies one will say and <laughs> may or may not believe themselves, but it's like they do a very good job of showing you that Henry Hill does not give a fuck about that at any point in time in the movie in terms of like anything he actually does. It's yeah. sort of merely something that happens when there's a domestic dispute. I love when he gaslights the shit out of his wife. She's like, I know something's going on. And he's like, you're fucked up in the head, Karen. You're it's sick. all in your mind. Yeah. <laughs> and sick. it's just like, shit, dude. <laughs> like you're heading to Janice's house right now. <laughs> but yeah. And then, you know, I mean, I really love the moment when um, Polly and Jimmy sit him down and they're like, the thing with the mistress has to end. And oh, the yeah. way they say it is, look, nobody's telling you what you can and can't do. And then yeah, no like, one's telling you you can't do what you want. And then De Niro's like, yeah, we're not telling you you can't do what you want. But this has got to end. Yeah. But nobody's saying that. No, no, no one's saying that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, that's so good. He's <laughs> like, you can't get a divorce. Yeah, we're not animales. <laughs> right. Yeah, we're not animales. And then it cuts to him and Jimmy on out of town work literally trying to feed a guy to the lions at the yeah. time. <laughs> <You know? laughs> no, it's yeah. So but I think when I watched it now, not just because I'd read the shepherd, but because I'm older and because I'm married now, you know, I could appreciate what was really going on in the dynamic between him and um, Karen, his wife. And to me, the moment that really solidifies their relationship is when she gets roughed up by that country club guy who lives across the street from her and Henry drives her home and then walks across the street and beats the shit out of the guy with the butt of his gun and then hands her the bloody gun and asks her to hide it. And it is a moment of incredible power. You really feel that that guy gets what's coming to him. You think like, oh, this is what, frankly, if somebody did that to my wife, I would probably do the same fucking thing. Um, And so you can kind of ascribe to him that there is some sort of code that goes on here. And she says, some of my best friends would have seen that and run away, but I was turned on. I liked it, you know, and like everything else, that is a compact that is made about how it like feels to be with someone who performs in a certain way not necessarily about the bond itself Mm -hmm. in other words there's like this interesting narcissistic enjoyment of the appearance of being with someone like that yeah like what does it say about you that he likes you like right it's quite often the thought or whatever in it. I mean, it's something that 
I'm going to be talking about this a lot, but when alone talks about, um, uh, what was the ad TV show that was love Mad Men? Mad Men, um, yeah. What was that guy's name? I haven't watched it. So Don Draper. Don, Don Draper, the protagonist. Yeah. But he mentions that Don Draper, like the picture we have of him as viewers, maybe not all of us, but the picture some people have of him as viewers, it's like, yeah, he's like he he can really talk, you know, gab. He's got the gift. He's cool. He has all these women or whatever, but like the actual content of his escapades are like quite sad <laughs> and like miserable. And I thought it was really interesting looking at like Henry Hill's, you know, mistresses, especially Janice was like, you know, nowhere near as attractive as Karen, like at all. And I was no. like, that's, you know, that's, there's something so like psychologically piercing <laughs> about that decision it just reminded me of the clinton thing like he was only <laughs> hunting for sixes you know? he never had the confidence for tens and he knew it would piss hillary off right or like hugh grant always getting caught with like you know like he could probably date supermodels or like really hot women but he was always like having like weird bathroom sex with like random women you know mm-hmm. but like there's just something to that and I thought it was so like brilliant that they like had that aspect to this movie because it is sort of like um because the basis of their relate like why does he like Karen? Which cause she shows up and like chews him out. Mm-hmm. And like he didn't pay her any attention until that happened. And then I could see it in his eyes. He was like, Oh shit, like this is awesome. Like, you know, he's like, I love her, like this is great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, because she comes there, makes a huge scene in front of every like there is a certain like they're both getting a um like a really stimulating buzz off of the fact that the other person seems like this particular thing that says something about them and there's no scene that says that more clearly than when she says i want to go out with my girlfriends tonight and he's like how much money do you want and she shows a fat basically with her fingers like how thick she wants the stack to be and he gives her half of this huge wad of cash in his pocket and then she drops down out of frame and he goes, Oh, all right. And like gives her the yeah. rest, you know? And it was just like, this is fucking bleak, man. <laughs> like, yeah. This like is... you guys have fucking kids. Like shit. <laughs> I was just like, this is so undignified. And that's really like, you understand that the appeal of this requires that you resent yourself, you know, <laughs> like, and I mean, as a viewer, because if you the whole thing, Henry Hill is unapologetic for anything he does, right? The like one of the funniest things that Shepard points out is that like you know, the movie is just like look, there are two rules. Like you know, you don't talk and you don't rat on your friends. Uh, and he was like, but the movie is structured around betrayals, and they do that long tracking shot at the wedding or wherever it is, where it's like you're introduced to everyone, and mm-hmm. then like. 80% of those guys get killed by the three main characters in the film. <laughs> you know? And, uh-huh. and that the reason he did it is because he didn't want to be like you, the viewer. Yeah. Because fuck you. You're a nobody. Your marinara tastes like ketchup and your noodles are made out of egg. You suck. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's kind of like the substance of probably I can maybe only speak perhaps for men who are similar to me or something, but like that's kind of the delusion that you often find yourself in to keep going is sort of like, this isn't the real me. 
like the guy that he was talking to like that's just what i look like right now maybe to him but like inside i am him mm-hmm. and that'll happen for me one day while i continue to like not do anything but what i'm already you know like the way that you kind of work so but it's interesting because I feel like the whole reason that these stories are showing up and are appealing is because there's something fairly essentially like latter half of the 20th century America about this like archetype of a guy like that. Like that is the guy you want to be. Yeah. Your whole life informs that feeling. It's not difficult to think of the times that you felt stepped on like ignored forced to do shit that you know is like makes no sense and is stupid not been paid enough money for what you're doing not had any recourse not been able to say anything well you know what i mean like modern life is often full of these moments and so there's like it is hard to imagine anything more intoxicating than seeing a guy who like that could just never happen to <laughs> right exactly well and I, uh, you know we could add this i think felix biederman years ago over at Chapo, they were talking about the Sopranos or something. And he said, one of the reasons that like all of these, like maybe not the brightest dudes, but like romanticized the Sopranos, which is also like an equally like heart wrenching tale of just absolute moral degradation. Um, I love when Shepard says they like lifted that and also most of the supporting, supporting cast. cast. Yeah, including <laughs> Lorraine Bracco, who's amazing as Karen Hill and as amazing as Tony Soprano's shrink. Just mm-hmm. an incredible actor she is. Um, uh, but that it's mostly because all those guys have friends, at least for a while. And that's sort of the romance of it, is that like the experience of being a man this isn't true for me, but like, I know people for who this has been true. And it seems to be like most guys kind of feel this way is like being painfully lonely. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting to like read stories of people who've transitioned, you know, and like people who've gone M to F and like sort of what they learn as they inhabit that role. And then um, what people who go from F to M female to male learn. And one of the things that I remember reading is that they were just like, I had no idea how lonely it was going to be to be a man. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not <clears throat> saying it's like worse to be a man. That's not, I don't care about that point. Like I'm just pointing out that this is that fact is why these things escape more like critical faculties <laughs> of how you would otherwise register Henry Hill's story. Right. And the fact that we have this idea, John and I were talking before we started recording where, look, I'll just read the shepherd and then I'll make this point. Right. Because what he's really interested in is like this idea of American hardball. Like we're going to fuck you and we're going to lie to you and you're going to like it. And he's noticing that that's basically how the Bush regime operates during the Iraq war. And he says, maybe nowhere else in American movies can we find such a paradigmatic version of high-spirited and lethally destructive fuck-you selfishness. A selfishness that may well register without concern its own long-term non-viability. Or such a portrait of the way the perpetrators of such selfishness expect the rest of us to be charmed by their good fortune. Quote, it was more that Henry was enterprising 
that he and the guys were making a few bucks hustling while other men were sitting on their asses waiting for handouts. Karen, Henry Hill's wife, tells us, by way of explaining why her husband felt justified in bending a few rules, and in the process sounding like she's been attending cocktail parties at Enron or Halliburton or the Texas <laughs> legislature. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's... <laughs> I think you're totally right on both counts because when I watched the Sopranos like that, so much of that movie is like male camaraderie or TV shows, male camaraderie, like just going on, like, and then they kill people and stuff. And that's like also cool and fun too. But like most of the time. And then you kill your best friends and then your life is ruined. And then you find out you're a psychopath and no one wants to be around you. (laughs) But before that happens, you're like talking about how like espresso is Italian or something. And you know, like like you're having a good time and you've got like some sort of sense of like embedded community, even if it's a bit violent or whatever. And there was a similar like early stage of that to, um, to two good fellows because i liked when he said you know when joe pesci freaks out on henry hill in the you really early part of the movie yeah it's sort of like the sign of like oh like you thought this was fun and you were safe but he like you're not safe but i think even though that happens after he makes it through that you are then left with this sense that like okay like joe pesci he might shoot spider or something but he would never shoot me you know what i mean like yeah yeah like he, he wouldn't shoot me like we're boys, you know, <laughs> like and there's there's some aspect of like, yeah, these people are like completely insane and dangerous. But like, you know, we're we're in this together. Like there's a, there's it's it's um, tenuous, but somehow like you're able to view that if you're like, especially from a position of like pure loneliness, it's like somehow more. Almost anything's better than being horrible. Yeah, like it's more fulfilling than than nothing. Yeah, and totally. I think that's totally right. And it does sort of like it shields you from I think a lot of what these really interesting connections are being made by Shepard about like who are the people because mm-hmm. one of the things McIntyre is really about is like archetypal characters in our society yeah. um, as we're going through that book. And I think that the wise guy is definitely like an operative archetype for, for us in America. And like, like was said, nowhere do you find a better group of wise guys in the U S government than the Bush administration, Bush two. <laughs> yeah. Oh, totally. Or, I mean, like I said, the dialectic before we start recording, I was joking. Let's say the dialectic is like uh, Henry Hill to the Bush administration to Donald Trump. You know, it's like Trump is sort of the synthesis of, of these of these things. I mean, the the thing that I was going to going to top off after the quote was that like obviously we're doing a reading of the '80s here when we're watching Goodfellas. And Scorsese has a lot of things to say about this. He says them again in Wolf of Wall Street, which is also about this and also about 2008, you know, directly or not. He's primarily interested in, I would say, betrayal and moral corruption. Like he has remained a good Catholic altar boy for his entire career. And I will respect him forever for being that way. But there's this idea in the whole Gordon Gecko, like whatever... Like the RJR Nabisco mergers had happened two years before Goodfellas comes out, which is like an insane like M&A bloodbath that is all sorts of double dealing and weird shit. And it's like not clear that anything really gets created other than like fake. Well, you know, it's like 
non-productive, <laughs> totally nuts, super corrupt, like all that stuff. And the idea is that like, oh, you've got hustle, like meaning you're willing to like break the rules to get ahead. Mm-hmm. Right. And that we see that at Enron, we see that in 08. And that's sort of, the, I would say, the, like the political side of it. Now I'd say, if I'm going to make the bourgeois distinction between these two things, when we look at the political side of it, it's going to be something like the, <laughs> the Bush regime's Schmidtian permanent state of exception, where they can like rewrite parts of the Constitution in legal gray areas and basically like find all of these exploits to consolidate executive power. And kind of like not even really pretend that they're not lying often. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Some of those press conferences are just like amazing because it's sort of like, look at you. Like, oh, what about the the weapons of mass destruction? I think that's what Shepard brings it up in the essay. And then Rumsfeld is like, maybe he got rid of them before we got there. (laughs) And nobody says anything. (laughs) I love how clear it is that it's like, you think that fucking matters? Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, what are you going to fucking do? Or it's like when Cheney and we can pivot to talking a little bit about vice now and sort of braid these things together. Um, is, you know, I remember when he was just like, well, you don't govern based on public opinion. And it's hard to remember how many millions of people turned out in the streets against the Iraq war. You know, we talked about it when we did the woke empire uh, thing a few weeks ago, you know, it's not like just because, 9-11 happened, all of America wanted to be in the Iraq war. There was real confusion about what was going on there. There needed to be a narrative for that. And these guys were just like, fuck you. Like, you think I care about that? <laughs> right? Like, let's juxtapose. Just, just, And that's sort of like what the end of Vice is, right? Where he's being interviewed by this woman and she was like, yeah, most Americans hate this, that you did this. And he goes, you can't allow basically public opinion to blow you off course. And then he pivots to the camera and he says, you have to take the world as it is, not how you want it to be. And there are monsters and I can feel your acrimony that I wouldn't take those monsters and then kiss them on the cheek. And then weirdly, he goes to say, like, you you chose me as your protector. And he gets teary eyed and he says, thank you for allowing me to serve you. And then you juxtapose that with Henry Hill ratting his friends out, walking out of the courtroom, talking directly to the thing. And he's mm-hmm. like, I'm a fucking nobody. Like, I like hate this. I live a normal life. You normal people suck. And then he has a flashback to seeing Tommy, Joe Pesci's character, shooting someone to death and like smiles in reverie <laughs> at remembering that. And interestingly, in, and Shepard did a really great reading of this, Goodfellas closes with Sid Vicious's version of I Did It My Way, which is sort of shitting on the whole Godfather, like old blue eyes idea of like this ethnic like we did we had to do what we could like times were tough you know romantic buildings roman thing that's happening in the godfather because like regrets i've had a few sid vicious (laughs) sneers you know it's so (laughs) shitty it's so sleazy and then vice ends with the song um i want to be in america from west side story (laughs) which is also about that same sort of like mid 20th century myth 
about what it is to be like an ethnic minority in like hard scrabble new york and trying to come up in the gang life there you know and mm-hmm. both of these moments are like supreme ironies but i basically see these monologues is almost identical right it's just that one has a different veneer i mean it's why that like apocryphal Karl rove quote about how like we create realities that you people will go mm-hmm. on to study like that's what it means to be an imperium or whatever the heck he said yeah like whether or not he actually said it like it's spiritually true and thus he did say it in a it very was, it was entirely true of how that administration ran itself yeah, it's very much the um, it is the ecstatic truth of of that administration. Like Werner Herzog talking about, like you know, I just made up a quote and attributed it to Pascal because that allowed your mind to see this as a higher thing. It yeah. elevated your experience, <laughs> yeah. and thus, in that way, was it not true? Like Pascal couldn't have said it better himself. Like so, of course, you know what I mean. It's like. Absolutely, that's how I felt about the Karl Rove thing. Like, whether or not he said it, he said it because, like, that was the before we had the Chad memes. That that was it. That was it's it. Like, I mean, think about it this way, right? So we have the scene with Spider, who goes on to be Chris in The Sopranos, and he's a stuttering <laughs> kid that brings him the drinks at the card table, and for fun, Joe Pesci because he feels slighted that Spider didn't bring him. His drink fast enough. He shoots Spider in the foot. And then later, when Spider has the gall to be like, go fuck yourself. You know, you shot me in the foot. He, Tommy turns around and kills Spider after being egged on by Jimmy. And Jimmy's like, what's the matter with you? I was joking. (laughs) And then I think of when Dick Cheney, and this happens in Vice, shoots that guy in the face. And then that guy apologizes to him. <laughs> Didn't Shepard compare that to the earlier scene where they kill the maid guy? And he was like, I was joking. And then Joe Pesci's like, it doesn't feel like you're joking. Yeah, and he's like, yeah, maybe that guy was being an asshole, but maybe he also didn't deserve to get stomped to death in a bar. (laughs) You know, know, it's just like, yeah, like maybe all those terrorists were bad, but maybe we didn't need to so destroy a rack's grid that it has never recovered to its level of development it had since the 1980s. Yeah. You know, like maybe that was disproportionate, also kind of an insane thing to do. So here's what I'll just read the thing. This is this is good. I love this. It's Scorsese's portrait of Hill's shamelessness and invincible inability to be educated in ethical terms <laughs> that's turned out to be so prescient about where we are headed as a country. <laughs> just one week around the time I wrote this essay, we were treated to, just to choose a random sampling, Paul Wolfowitz, the U.S. Deputy Secretary of Defense, remarking in Vanity Fair that disarming Iraq's weapons of mass destruction was nothing more than a bureaucratic reason for war. Donald Rumsfeld, when asked at a press conference just what had happened to all of those weapons, suggesting with a straight face that maybe Saddam had gotten rid of them all before we arrived, 
And someone named Michael Ledine, who apparently held the Freedom Scholar Chair at the American Enterprise Institute, going on record to announce that, quote, every 10 years or so, the United States needs to pick up some crappy little country and throw it against the wall just to show the world we mean business, unquote. More examples <laughs> blossom forth in backwater areas of the media every single day. Their message is the same as the wise guy's message in Goodfellas. Are we lying? Of course we're lying. And guess what? You're going to sit there and take it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, when we read the Joan Didion, I never saw this before, but the amazing Charles Krauthammer quote, about how America is a uniquely benevolent imperium. And you can tell because of how much everyone's clamoring for an invasion or something to that extent. Yeah. It's just like, <laughs> that's so crazy, man. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's just a truly insane thing to say. And like, <sighs> you know, one of the things that, that we see play out in the logic here is like the idea of the man of action. Well, at least they did something. Mm. You know, at least Henry was willing to go out there and get it. He wasn't just going to be fucking Joe Blow trying to work his way up in the union for more hours, you know. Instead, he was going to shoot a guy in the face and take all the cigarettes out of the truck and sell them out of the back of his Honda. You know, like that's <laughs> like at least he did that. He's a real earner. At least he <laughs> did that. You know, maybe all of this was terrible in the long run and built a surveillance state that nobody's accountable for. And like that John Hughes unitary executive opinions are just sitting on a DOJ computer waiting for some enterprising dictator to <laughs> bend them further to his own interest. But at least those guys went out there and drone striked a bunch of children into nothingness. <laughs> at least they went out and did something. Yeah. And that's actually, I'm glad you brought that up because it was, a big part of maybe my personal fascination with such figures was an extremely crippling level of like personal anxiety that basically made me feel like I was locked into my own inaction and stasis out of like so much fear for like such a long portion of my young adulthood that, and I, it's not like true of me now. So I can watch this movie, I think in a different way, but back then like that would like, sold you know like oh you mean you can do anything like something anything like you mean that you can have a thought of an action and then enact it all in kind of the same flowing movement rather than like being so petrified that nothing ever happens and nothing may ever happen you know what i mean like and there's a certain something to that i think that's probably like not limited to me or anything like in terms of how these figures can have such an appeal despite the fact that there's just like a, an obviously distinct amoral quality to this whole thing. And I think, you know, like some aspect of this, I think is that like you have perhaps this is like conjecture, but whatever, maybe a lot of people who are similar to me in some way who are like young and, and men and, with the like real genuine lack of like meaningful, like older male guidance or whatever for them that has any sort of like actual content. Um, like this is kind of what you is on offer for you is like your life sucks. You feel kind of shitty. Like what do you kind of take in all day? Like media, you go see movies, you watch TV. Yeah. What's handed to you on media is that like, 
the guys who are cool that anyone likes or respects are like lawbreakers and eminently self-absorbed <laughs> and that is yeah. not something that's going to lead you to like a lasting success or happiness but it's kind of like a trade-off that they make look pretty dang good is sort of like yeah like live by the sword die by the sword but at least you lived a kind of a little thing and i think that just to like in these ways, I think the psychological aspect is not merely personal, but part of like the broader social context of how these things really find purchase with mm-hmm. us, not merely as an interesting um, removed critique of empire, but like also a deeply personally kind of compelling portrait of a way that you can be in a society that honestly lacks a lot of guidance for you in terms of like, how do you deal with life? How do you accomplish mm-hmm. long-term projects? What kind of person are you supposed to be? How do you build a life? What is that going to look like? Will that fulfill you? Like, what is fulfilling? What can you do that, like, is worth anything? Uh, so there's a Reddit called, um, like, Find a Path, I think. And basically every post is, like, men and women. I know I often talk about men because I kind of want to say that I can imagine they can relate to me, but a lot of women surprisingly too are like, I'm 30. I've never had a career. It's not because I'm not smart, but simply because nothing ever seemed like it meant any damn thing. So I never felt very like energized to pursue it. And now I'm kind of just like drifting alone. All my friends are gone and I don't know what to do. And sometimes I don't know why I'm here anymore. And you read that and you're like, dang, that sucks. But then you read like 50 of those posts or whatever. And you're like, man, that's like crazy. And it's like totally descriptive of me at age 20, you know? And it's, so you're, I'm like, okay, so this is like a whole class of people in like 21st century America that you, like, this is a social phenomenon. This is not isolated individuals who couldn't cope or whatever. No, that's the, that was sort of what that feel when no GF was talking about. Right, 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 right. And I feel like, you know, the exactly know where I'm trying to go with this, except for the fact that like, it's got to be part of the reason that this all kind of works, like it all makes sense. You can have a government like constituted along these lines, because there's no like society is not set up for like a bunch of virtuous guys who are going to like do things for future generations to be very successful or to look that cool. And there's no, you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. that kind of a life, it's only really something you can portray just as like this person just sacrificed everything. And then like, they weren't even happy, you know, or like Dostoevsky's the idiot or something. There's like a quality to any kind of like moral life today which is sort of like you are consigning yourself to in some way be completely on the outside forever. And if you're somebody who's already on the outside and is looking for something, you know, it's very difficult to then make the case to that person that like you can stay on the outside and it could get better and you could cultivate a life that's not purely like chasing wealth and some form of like, excited stimulation which the whole cocaine part of goodfellas is kind of like that's a really good description of it is it's sort of like you just kind of need to keep doing blow to keep it going you know for as long as you possibly can or whatever 
I mean, that, that's a little bit disjointed, but it like brought up so many different things that we've been thinking about on this podcast together for me. Yeah, no, they exactly. Kind of start to relate. I mean, this is why I think we need to do an episode on Wolf of Wall Street and Pain and Gain, with, which came out in the same year. Um, and those is readings of post-2008 America and like what, what that tells us about, again, Scorsese again, but you know, even still, you know, there was, I mean, if we just think about the general like feeling of what it means to try and get ahead in America, it usually means breaking rules, like move, move fast and break things. That may as well have been a, a Bush regime slogan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like that could have also been true of Henry Hill. You know, like one of the things we have to like sit back and ask is like, what, this is such a corny question, right? But it's really a question about like, how do you live a moral life and what opportunities are there for you to do that? I'm not going to say none. I think that that's really unfair and like not like, um, precise, you know, but what I will say is that I think you're right. I think we are facing like some sort of inability to provide that sense to citizens. I mean, l- let's have an idea of like where wokeness comes from. Right. So let's do a little bit of self critique too. So I got really pissed off when I was watching, um, that stupid movie on Netflix, the social dilemma. <laughs> yeah. Right. Because I was like, all of these people just want to like control everything everyone says and they're paranoid. And I still think that's true. However, you know, I could probably, I probably undersold the extent to which the internet does actually radicalize people in making that argument. Right. Because I've seen it happen around me. Now that doesn't mean that happens to everyone. Right. I wouldn't make that claim either, you know, Mm -hmm. and that doesn't mean that that happens to everyone who does get radicalized permanently. I still wouldn't make that claim. But when we take a look at these like woke orthodoxies as they set in, which I think are actually like people on the left are like, oh, they're still trying to act like it's not a big deal. And I'm like, this is very clearly now more than just crazy kids on college campus and that this has happened. If I want to do a very like fair reading of like what makes something like this possible beyond the like material digital structures of the internet, what I will say is that these are all people who have decided on what the capital G good for society is. And there is a total famine of rebuttals to that because we have just been acting like no one ever gets to decide that ever. So of course, people who are willing to step up and do that are going to have a much easier time deciding what that's going to look like for literally everyone else. Right. This is another thing, right? Like I was looking into some sociology papers on this about the American government as being administratively very weak. Right. That's part of, frankly, the tradition of liberty in America is that our government would be administratively weak, but normatively powerful. Right. That means that there are going to be all sorts of HR compliance things that pop up where you are so that things are in line with the latter decisions built off of the 64 civil rights thing. Much of that stuff is like identitarian and totally nuts. And that's why a lot of this stuff is getting perpetuated in these institutions by these HR contractors or departments, right? So normatively very, very, very powerful. Well, 
the problem with that is we don't have any defenses against it. A, it's hard. It feels diffuse. Like, where is it coming from? Because if something is like normatively powerful, but administratively weak, it's hard to locate an epicenter. You could change it in. But another part of it is also that like, what's a, what, what's the response? What's the response to this culture that you can have right now? That feel like, I'm not saying one you could think of that is very persuasive. I'm thinking, what is something that people generally believe within themselves that our society puts on offer that has a more concrete vision of what goodness is than what this stuff is? Because what it looks like is what Shepard points out in this essay as the conversation, the Malayan dialogue in Thucydides. You know, just as I do, that what is right is decided among equals while the weak suffer what they must. And most major parties have been selling something that is that in disguise. Oh, yeah. like, don't you like, oh yeah, man. Like you need to keep your family together. Like conservative values of the chamber of commerce. Look how well that turned out. Right. Okay. Or you could say like, look, we really need to like do something about inequality. That's why we're going to have black oligarchs. The, the conservative or opposition to that too, which is sometimes conservative, I guess, but like, we'll just say most of what I see out there as well. Like it's become very clear to me that they really think that they're not the same thing. But when I look at how they discursively operate or whatever, I'm like, Oh, conservatives just became like woke people with different aesthetics yeah, But like in terms of the way that they rely upon the same kind of like vein affect buildup and discharge cycles that are basically like just part of the medium of like online exchange or like, you know, everything is still predicated around like, here's an enraging thing that I'll present to you in an enraging way. You'll be enraged by it. Say that the other people are like so bad or whatever. But like, you know, because like, like when we, we recently when we discussed like a Colette article about. Um, oh, that woman who got kicked out of that classic. Yeah, thing. that was like so fucking nuts. Like that was one of the most insane things. But you pointed out you're just like nobody who reads Quillette actually gives a shit about the classics or reads them or is going to do anything about this. This person is totally right in what they're saying. This is a shame, but this is more like rage porn than anything else like the way it will discursively actually function has nothing to do with defending the study of the classics yes i think that i was because when i thought about it i was like this is basically Emmett's lecture porn thing but like now conservatives thrown and it's like decline of western civ porn where it's like look at this like they've infiltrated the bastion the heart the heart of shit you like, weren't even taking care of. Yeah, like, shut no, up. but it's like none of you people are even going to read this in English. Like you were never going to pick up that Penguin Classics, bro. Just stop. Like don't pretend. And it's but I see that there, and then I've gone and looked around like other sort of online groups of people, and there will be a similar thing where it's like they're supposedly all gathering together because of some like things that are real in the real world that they care about. 
But then when you look at what they actually spend pretty much all of their time doing, it isn't has nothing to do with like said thing at all. Like said thing was merely a pretext to kind of like get together and get mad about like kind of really trashy like articles being released in the kind of press cycle or whatever things it's so you see that like the medium is the message in some way like as always and despite the fact that like people are seemingly at odds they're all basically doing the same thing there's not like a genuine alternative i think like emmett is really saying um on offer at all in any kind of social way like maybe personally someone could think of something but like there's nothing finding purchase amongst big groups of people that seemingly is any different at all. And I no, think when to I do that, the, so yeah. people would have to really question their priors, right? Like part of the reason that we ended up with the weird HR regime we did is because neither, especially not conservatives wanted to focus on political economy in the post-war era. Cause that was some socialist shit to do. So they all did like Oscar Handlin identitarianism it was like, oh, these ethnic enclaves, blah, blah, blah. And all that got put in the Moynihan report because that was like a response to certain conservative pressures about talking about shit like political economy or whatever. And that's the way that worked out. And now we have what we have, right? Mm. Like, and they will never admit that. Just like the liberals and the left are never going to turn around and say, maybe there were some mistakes in the 64 Civil Rights Act. Can you imagine someone fucking admitting that? Segregation had to fucking go. Right. But how that sausage actually got made is like very different than like what the aspiration was. Right. And it is insanely uncomfortable to talk about that. In fact, the only people that I see trying to figure out how to be honest about it are people that are on the fringes of the fringes. Right. So we have conservatives like Christopher Caldwell, this guy, Hanania. We've got Michael Lind, like, sure, these guys have cachet on the right, but they're not, like, huge, right? They're not actual movers and shakers. Same with Adolf Reed and his son, Toure. Mm. Toure's book does a great fucking reading of some of the problems with this stuff and does a good job of pointing out where guys like Lind, Caldwell, et cetera, sort of, like, fuck up their critique, mm-hmm. but points out, like, parts of where it's right. Adolf Reed does the same with some of the stuff about how anti-racism like is really more about how the middle class is going to decide to talk about racism <laughs> or anything mm-hmm. like that than actually solve any issues in this country. Yeah. I think that my pessimism about the possibility of like a moral life in society is maybe it's better put as like a pessimism about the possibility of a moral life in this society right now mm-hmm. as it's constituted. But I guess it's easier to put in concrete terms. Like it'll be pretty difficult for you to have like, I'll say a strong ethical code of some kind and go into like investment banking (laughs) or um, the the best part of the big short, in my opinion, is when Steve Carell's wife says good people don't live on fifth Avenue. Yeah. Yeah. She knows what the deal is. Like she's the most honest person in that whole fucking movie. And it's not to say that that's the only thing you can do, but like we love to talk here about how like if you're not going to college and making a lot of money as a professional, like what are you? You're a, a one of those guys that Henry Hill's talking about. In some yeah. sense, that's how we look at it. Like that's you got ketchup on your pasta. Yeah, that's our pathway to that today, or whatever. 
And I think that if you, you are in some way, somebody who's like critical of like the global cold world, cold war state that we kind of still live with in many ways, you will have a hard time attaching yourself to any of the institutions that are the arteries and heart of it without morally being compromised in that way. So then what do you do? And it's a similar thing with like, Oh, I want to be a thinker or whatever. You'll probably run into some similar problems in the Academy at some point, you know, you'll, it doesn't matter what it is. It'll come up. And that's not to say that problems didn't always come up everywhere for people who were trying to be moral but I will say that I will go ahead and just plant the flag and say that like at other times there have been hegemonic moralities that even the rulers had to pretend to align themselves with. And that I don't know that you could call whatever we have today, a hegemonic like set of ethics so much as um, you know, like okay, if you believe that like Goodfellas contains like a set of ethics for approaching the good life, then sure. But (laughs) you know what I mean? There is a certain sense in which there were at least standards that people who wanted to ignore them had to like outwardly conform to. Mm -hmm. And that there is like a qualitative substantial difference between having that and not having that. And I think in many ways we're living in a world where you don't have that. And so you can't at least be like an outwardly moral person and an inwardly moral person among outwardly moral, but inwardly amoral people you are now both outwardly and inwardly obviously at odds with things if you think that certain things are wrong or whatever and that's not to say that there's no possibility for you to live a life but i think the deal now is that like you have to chart that course on your own in a lot of ways you can't really rely on like the tried and true life paths to just hand you a life where you can be true to something that you like want to hold true, but also be like relatively materially successful. Like I think more and more what we're seeing is like the requirement is you kind of have to go off on your own, put it together as you go and make decisions the best you can, like exercise your judgment about the opportunities that come up and what they might mean. And like maybe make hard choices between, between different options and Mm -hmm. which is all to say that like maybe life has always been that way but it's i just to clarify like it's not that morality is impossible but it's going to be um contested at many many sites um and that's maybe just something that we i was ill prepared for you know for for a long time because i a didn't really have a good view on like either my society or like what a genuine ethical like commitment might be that wasn't purely like emotive for, for quite a long time. Yeah. I mean, the way I would put it is that like um, ethics is a process of sacrifice and exclusion. Yeah. And those aren't, I think many people today find both of those ideas incredibly repulsive. It's basically like sacrifice and exclusion is it's everything that you're sort of horrified by as like a culturally narcissistic person as, as I am. It's the idea of like limiting your horizons of Mm -hmm. not always having every choice of not always having an escape hatch out of every commitment you've ever made. (laughs) Yeah. Um, 
uh, it's like, you know, you, Giorgio Agamben did a book about like, I think it was about the oath or something, but it's mm-hmm. all about like the way in which you make these commitments that are temporally binding upon the future and that limit you in so many ways. It's something that Byung Chul Han likes to talk about with the, like the disillusion of things like marriage and stuff, which he finds troubling, not because marriage is a traditional institution, but because it constituted something that bound time in Mm -hmm. a way that made it more concrete and controlled. But that provides you with something like a home in the world, in the future and now, instead of an endless rhizomatic sea of possibility where nothing will ever remain with you. Um, and the way that that changes the world for you as a human being. So this, you know, I think we have ranged like yeah, from we've the philosophical far. to right. the social, to the psychological, to f- filmmaking. To, but I think it's all like many levels of the same sort of exact thing that we're, we're kind of getting into. Yeah. I would say like part of what happens in Goodfellas and maybe we can close it here is that all of the bonds that the movie is built around are all the things that get destroyed by the behavior of everyone. And, and it's what we found comforting. Right. Right. Exactly. And that that's sort of what happens in vice, you know, in the same way that eventually Channing has to betray or not has to, but decides to betray his daughter, Mary, mm-hmm. who's gay so that his other daughter, Liz can have a political career. Right. Um, he cuts Rumsfeld loose because he becomes inconvenient, you know, and some foundational elements of our society, right? Like all these people love to cry over the constitution, but like, come on. Right. Like <laughs> the bond in a Republic, the law is now has all sorts of escape hatches for any sort of binding relationship. And that's where we are, you know? So on that cheery note, We'll leave you guys. Stay <laughs> safe out there. And we'll see you Have next a good time. day. Yeah, have a great day, guys. <laughs> All right.
Show. 